you would, turn with me in your copies of God's Word to the prophecy of Zechariah. Zechariah and chapter 12. Zechariah 12, and we'll commence our reading there at verse 9. Beloved, hear once again the word of our God. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. In that day shall there be a great mourning in Jerusalem as the mourning of Hadad Ramon in the valley of Megiddo. And the land shall mourn every family apart, the family of the house of David apart, and their wives apart. The family of the house of Nathan apart, and their wives apart. The family of the house of Levi apart, and their wives apart. The family of Shimei apart, and their wives apart. All the families that remain, every family apart, and their wives apart. In that day there shall be a fountain opened to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. Our text is just that first verse of chapter 13. In that day there shall be a fountain opened in the house of David and in the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. May the Lord bless us under this word of his this morning. The prophet Zechariah has now for several chapters given to us a picture of one day, one prophetic day. This single day that the prophet envisions for us has quite a lot within it. Here you find, as you read throughout this prophecy, that that the prophet envisages the the engrafting of the Gentiles, that he sees the, the nations that were once in darkness brought back to Jehovah. He sees also, as as we find earlier, that, that he will also bring back the Israelite church. He will bring them back after a time of apostasy as well. And then as we come to the verses that we read in chapter 12, you'll see there that this will also be a time of mourning. But a mourning that is produced as God pours upon the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplications. And they will mourn because in this day, this prophetic day, they pierced the Lord. The day that's in view, obviously, is is not a single day. We're not talking about a span of time over 24 hours. Uh, This day is that day that stretches from the first to the second advent of Christ. This is the day that begins with Christ's incarnation and closes with his second coming. And friend, what you have here then, as the prophet Zechariah conveys to us what is to occur in this single day, you have here a picture of how Christ accomplishes and also how he applies his redemptive work. 
This is the gospel day that Zechariah has before us. And our text, chapter 13 and verse 1, is part of that day. In that day, says the Lord, that selfsame day, a fountain would be opened for sinners. Now friend, I, I don't really need to tarry long in terms of introduction here. Obviously, what we see in this text is that through the Lord Jesus Christ, sinners would have access to cleansing. That through the Lord Jesus Christ, their pollution would be dealt with. Their pardon secured. And so, friend, what this text teaches us very pointedly is that in Christ, great sinners are truly cleansed. In Christ, great sinners are truly cleansed. And as we come this morning, I I want us to look at this text in three ways. I want us to look at the fountain or the spring itself. I want us to look at those who are stained, and then I want us to conclude with consideration of, of course, the sprinkling that is involved. The spring, the stained, and the sprinkling in our text. And as we do so, friend, I, I just remind you that these, these thoughts are to drive our, our focus to Christ. And of course, this is to be preparatory uh, for what we, we anticipate later this morning. When we come solemnly to commune with him by faith. Friend, here we have a lively picture of the Christ that you and I are to lay hold of by faith as we partake of the sacrament. And so it should be our earnest prayer that the Lord would take up this text and prepare us so. And may he do so for his own glory. So we take, first of all, the spring, the fountain that's in view here. The text simply says there shall be a fountain opened. And the question, of course, initially is who has opened the fountain? And the answer is given to us in the text itself. The answer, of course, is the Lord. In verse 10 of chapter 12, we find he is the principal actor. It is the Lord who poured upon the house of David, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and of supplication. It's the Lord who is the active agent. And so, of course, it is the Lord who has opened this fountain. Well, friend, as you look at this text we do have to ask the question, who is this Lord? I suppose that's perhaps a straightforward question, an easy answer. But notice how the prophet Zechariah has communicated to us how the Lord presents himself in this moment. Again, if you go back to the 10th verse, he describes himself as the one whom they have pierced. That is the Lord who has opened this fountain. The one whom they have pierced. I want you to notice that if you were just to flip over to another page, to the 13th chapter, you'd find that the prophet Zechariah continues this train of thought. In verse 7 of chapter 13, he says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man who is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts. I want you to notice that in in verse 7 of chapter 13, you also have this idea of piercing. And I want you to notice that in that text too, it's described, the one who is pierced is described as the Lord's fellow. Is the one who is Jehovah, truly. That's the one who is pierced, and and that is the one who has opened this fountain. 
Now friend, I don't need to elaborate terribly long on who the Lord's fellow is in chapter 13, 7. And I don't need to elaborate long on on who is in view in chapter 12 and verse 10. Because, of course, the New Testament tells us in the Gospel accounts that, that all of these texts are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He is the shepherd that was was pierced by, by the sword of divine justice. He is the one who is pierced by the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The prophet Zechariah has Jesus Christ in view. He is the one who is the pierced one in our text. But does that help us understand the fountain itself? Understanding it's Jehovah that has opened the fountain. Understanding that the one who who has been pierced in this text is the Lord Jesus Christ. It does raise the question, what is the fountain then? Again, friend, the New Testament is quite clear and quite emphatic. Hebrews 9. How much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Manifestly, friend, what this text teaches us is that it was God the Son who was pierced. It was God, Jehovah, who opened this fountain, and it is Jesus Christ who is that fountain himself. He is the fountain opened by the Lord. He is the fountain that was pierced, that sinners might be cleansed. Now friend, I want you to notice this just very briefly, that Christ is the one who is the fountain here. And I want us to begin by saying that he is so personally. Christ personally is this fountain I think that this is perhaps a point that we've often lost. But friend, what we need to keep before us is that it is the person of Jesus Christ that cleanses sinners. There are some who would transfer this cleansing virtue simply to the blood of Christ. As though the blood, as though its substance alone had this kind of efficacy. Friend, I want you to notice that this text and so many others in the New Testament show that that's blasphemy. It transfers the glory of the person of Christ to the instrument that was his human nature. No, friend, you and I are supposed to see that Christ himself is the fountain. Christ himself is that which is efficacious to truly purge sinners. As one of our forebears put it to us very pointedly, he said, Christ was the sacrifice in respect of his human nature. Yet... Though he suffered in the flesh, yet it was the same person that was God that suffered. He was the altar by which his sacrifice received a special excellency on his sufferings. It was the suffering of the person that was God that made his sacrifice to be accepted. Now friend, this is not some kind of of small and, and really arcane theological point that we're making here. What, what the text is teaching us and, and, and what, our, what one of our forebears reminded us of is the fact that Jesus Christ himself, the divine son incarnate, was the fountain opened. He personally 
was the one who was opened that sinners might be cleansed. Friend, this should stagger us. This should stagger us. Because though, of course, it's the case that it was his human nature that was pierced, it was the person of the Son of God incarnate who died. Though his divine essence is immutable, in his human nature, Christ, the Lord of glory, was crucified. And that's precisely what this text holds out to us. Friend, you and I required an atonement not of a nature, but of a person. You and I required the death of the one who was the incarnate Son of God. Only that fountain opened could cleanse sinners. Friend, this ought to stagger because you remember, you remember that moment when this fountain really was opened. You remember what Christ said to Pilate. He said there, you find it in Matthew 26, Thinkest not that I cannot pray now to my Father that he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels. He is the divine Son, though scourged, though to be crucified, he remains always what he was. And friend, you can imagine, can't you? It's not even a stretch of the imagination to see there the angelic host that was there at his incarnation, at his birth that announced that the Lord of glory had come down to man, looking on as they see the Lord of glory scourged by men, spit upon, blasphemed, tried by the courts of of perjured men. Can you imagine, friend, what the host of heaven saw there? As they saw He who is truly the incarnate Lord of glory suffer, that his flesh might be opened. Rent, as the Apostle in Hebrews says to us, that a new and living way might be made. Friend, all of the host of heaven, can you imagine in that moment, as they see him, the one whom they stood before in Isaiah 6, their eyes covered, their feet covered, and their wings unfurled to do his bidding. As Peter tells us, they looked earnestly to see both the accomplishment and the application of his redemption. Surely, it all stands to reason. It was the person of the Son of God that was opened. But friend, we can go a step further. You remember, you remember on that day when the fountain was opened, that the earth shook, the sky was darkened. Robert Rollick, one of our forebears, put it to us this way. He says, in this moment, the earth, the very sun, and senseless creatures would testify the sorrow that they had, that the Lord of glory should suffer such an ignominious death. By it, the Lord would show that it was nonetheless, for all of the scourging, for all of the abuse that he faced, it was still the divine son that hung upon Calvary's cross. It was not a nature, friend only. It was the person of the Son of God who hung there. That's the spring. That brings us to a question. Who are the stained in our text? We read simply, it's the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. 
We might ask the question, is it for them only? Is this fountain only for the house of David? Only for the Jerusalemite? Well, friend, in order for us to answer that question, I just remind you what you have in chapter 12. In that 12th chapter, verse 10, you find out that those groupings of people are specifically described as those who have pierced the Lord. They have pierced the Lord of glory incarnate. Now, friend, what you and I are supposed to draw from that is something of an argument from the greater to the lesser. What greater manifestation of man's hatred toward God could be found than what you see there at Calvary. And yet, says God, for the very ones that drove the spikes in his, in his wrists, for the very ones that cried, crucify him, crucify him, his blood be upon us and on our children, the very ones that delighted in the letting of his blood, who blasphemed him to the end, He says, even for some of them, God had opened a fountain. Friend, if these ones, arguably the greatest criminals among men, could have a fountain opened that they, even they, might be cleansed, then you and I are to argue, then surely there is a calling, a warrant for me to come to this fountain as well. This fountain was opened for would-be deicides, for those who would pierce the Lord of glory. I want you to notice, friend, that the criminality of the crucifixion, the criminality that you have when this fountain was opened, is the greatest, the grossest manifestation that the carnal mind indeed is enmity against God, and it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. I mean, friend, what greater manifestation could you look for? You could go, of course, to the Garden of Eden and you could see there man created and blessed by God's free, His free goodness to him. And you could see the the despite that, that Adam did to the goodness he received from God in the Garden. But friend, surely at Calvary, Surely at Calvary you see a clearer picture of man's hatred for God when he takes the Son of God incarnate and nails him to a Roman tree. What greater picture, what darker, bleaker picture of human nature could you find? Friend, the Holocaust, the greatest atrocities and genocides that you and I can find, do not compare to what you see at Calvary. Because in this moment, the the person of the Divine Son, He, friend, was there. It was the Divine Son incarnate that they crucified. The Lord of glory that they reviled. The one who was their very creator. And who called to them that they would come to Him and find life. This is the one whom they killed. But friend, if that's the case, if this is the most poignant expression of man's hatred toward God, then when you and I look at Calvary and you see all of its criminality, you and I are given a picture 
of your heart and mine without the grace of God. I don't think this is duly appreciated. But friend, if, if the Spirit of God had not blown upon your soul, you would have been of that number. Such was your heart and such was mine. We all are would-be deicides by nature. We all cry as the nations do by nature, that cry that's given in Psalm 2. Let us break, break from out, from, from his, under his sovereignty. Let us in all ways that we can take him from the throne. Friend, that's your heart and mind by nature. And if you don't know that, friend, then you've not come sensibly to your need for Christ. You would have stood at the foot of the cross and blasphemed him. And friend, the Lord God, who is the searcher of hearts, knows that. He knew from the moment of your conception that that was your bent and inclination. He knew that had you had opportunity, you would have crucified the Son of God again and again and again. You are, me and you, we are by nature deicides. And what this text teaches us is that even for such, this fountain has been opened. Even for those who would crucify the Lord of glory, this fountain has been opened and a warrant has been given that they might be cleansed in it. You see this wonderfully. At the, at the moment that Christ is about to leave his disciples, just moments before his ascension, he says this to them. He says he would have them preach repentance and remission of sins in his name among all nations. But then he says this, beginning at Jerusalem. And what John Bunyan said of that text, I think is, is perhaps exactly what we are supposed to see in our passage. He says in that command you and I are supposed to see that the mind of Christ was set on the salvation of the biggest sinners in his lifetime. Those who are closest to being genuine deicides, if you will. Those who had crucified the Lord of glory, Christ says, go to them first. Offer them first this cleansing. Offer them first my pardon. Offer them first my forgiveness. Even though they were the ones who outran all of humanity in manifesting their enmity against God. Go to them first and offer this. Well, friend, our text teaches the same thing. Even to great sinners, this fountain has been opened. But before I... I leave this point, friend, I just remind you that this Christ who has been opened and was so willing to offer his cleansing, his pardon, even to those who drove the nails into his hands, who spat upon him, who blasphemed him. Friend, this is the same Christ whom you and I have spurned this week. We have spurned the Lord of glory and the Lord of love. We have spurned the one who not only is altogether pure, holy, righteous, undefiled, but we have also spurned the one who is so tender in his calls even to the greatest of sinners.
Friend, don't forget that. And let that work in you what what is necessary to bring us to the point that we sang of in Psalm 51. But as we close, friend, there is a third element in this text that we can't miss, and that is the sprinkling that comes from this fountain. We're told that this fountain is open for sin and for uncleanness. Now for sin, obviously this stands for us as, 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 as really representing forgiveness. It sets before us the pardon that God offers to these great sinners. But for uncleanness, we could see their purging. This fountain is open not only for pardoning, but, but also for cleansing, for, for making one clean, truly, for sanctifying. But what's interesting is in this text, what you have here in view, literally, and perhaps you have a note in your Bibles to this effect, literally the word cleansing here has behind it the idea of a ceremonial cleansing. Literally, the idea is is that God would remove that uncleanness that separated them from the tabernacle or from the temple or from the congregation of Israel. Now, why is that important? Well, friend, I want you to know that what the Lord is teaching us here is not just then about the cleansing virtue of, of Christ with regard to the pardon of sin. It's not merely that Christ's Cleansing power respects the forgiveness of sin. What you see in this text is that he is also concerned to do away with the separation that obtains between sinners and God. He would cleanse them so as to reconcile them to God. He would do away with that wall of separation. A friend, we're going to consider this when we come to the table further. But what this text certainly teaches us is that in Christ, sinners are reconciled to God. Pardon and purging are included. But what I would highlight from this text is that this second port, this second aspect, this sprinkling that removes that separation between sinners and God indicates that God, that God had a desire to make peace with the would-be deicides. He had a desire to make peace with those who were at enmity with him. And so made a way to remove that separation. Friend, we shouldn't forget that element when we look at this text. What's striking about this, friend, if we just make an illustration at this point, is that this is quite contrary to what you and I might expect. The kind of thing that's in view here is is that of a king making overtures of of peace to regicides. Making overtures of pardon to those who would kill him. And making those overtures of peace before they ever asked for any terms. Before they ever requested any pardon. Friend, that's the idea in this text. The Lord God had opened a fountain for sin and for uncleanness for a people who never asked and who by nature would never ask until the Spirit of grace moved upon them. Friend, this is a staggering text in that regard especially. 
Because here you have the prevening love of God. God, friend, he could have left all of mankind as he found them after the fall. Had he not decreed out of his free grace to elect sinners, he could have left us all. And none of us would have asked for pardon. None of us would have pleaded for grace. None of us would have mourned for sin. And yet, and yet, friend, he did with sinners of mankind something he never offers to the fallen host of angels. Through his son, he offers true cleansing and forgiveness of sin. For them, he has opened a fountain for sin and for uncleanness. And that fountain is none other than the Lord of glory, the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you fled to Christ, friend? This text is tied integrally to what you see at the end of chapter 12. And at the end of chapter 12, you find the people mourning because they see themselves as deicides at heart. They see themselves as those who have pierced the Lord of glory. And they mourn, says the text, as as those who would mourn for their firstborn. Friend, do you know that kind of mourning over sin? Would you forsake sin and cling to Christ? But moreover, friend, what you have in this text is that the mourning that you see in chapter 12 is not one that debilitates. It's not one that leads to desperation. It's one that leads them to cry out to God because they truly repose on His promises of grace in His Son. And so, friend, are you a mourner in Zion? Are you one who has fled to the Lord Jesus Christ for this cleansing? Have you found by experience that this fountain is open even for great sinners? Such as you and such as me. If so, beloved, what the table before us sets is a picture of grace. It seals and signifies to us the pardon that's revealed to us in this text. And it does so in a very sensible manner. Friend, what it shows to us, what it seals, what it signs is pardon and divine love. Perhaps you know this, but the word sacrament comes from that Latin word that signifies mystery. And friend, the mystery in the sacrament is not the elements or what happens to the elements. The mystery in the sacrifice, sacrament rather, is the sacrifice of Christ is the divine love that lies behind and is signed and sealed in the sacrament. That's the true mystery here. That that God would be so pleased to open a fountain for the likes of you and the likes of me who, who are at enmity with God by nature. That He would love a company of mankind, lost sinners, so as to give His only Son to really be pierced by them. 
to really be crucified. To have his flesh rent that they might come and be reconciled to him. Friend, that's the mystery. As the Apostle in 1 Timothy 3 reminds us, that is the mystery of godliness. And that is what you have signed and sealed for us in the sacrament this morning. And so, beloved, the exhortation is to come. You who are stained, you who know that Christ and he alone can cleanse from this deep pollution, he and he only can bring you back to God. Friend, this table is for you. Come howsoever weak your faith may be. Come, as it were, a child of the light, but groping in the darkness. Come, and find here that the fountain indeed is opened. It's open for you, and for me, and for all, who lay hold of Jesus Christ by faith. Amen. At this time, I would call the session forward. And as they're making their way forward, I'll, I'll read now the terms of communicant membership for the Reformed Presbyterian Church of Ireland. I accept the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments as the Word of God and the only infallible rule of faith and practice. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the only Redeemer of men, supreme in church and state and independence. On divine grace, I take him as my Savior and Lord. I promise by divine grace to show a teachable and submissive spirit to the teaching of the Holy Scripture as set forth in the testimony of the Reformed Presbyterian Church of Ireland. I promise that by the help of the Holy Spirit, I will endeavor to live a life consistent with my profession. Those who are members of the Reformed Presbyterian Church, beloved, you are coming to a table where these vows are renewed. Your commitment to Christ and to a faithful profession of his name in this life is being solemnly renewed at this table. And so it's right for us to have these things before us. This sacrament was instituted, of course, by the Lord God himself. We read the words of institution from 1 Corinthians 11. I have received of the Lord that which also I have delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also, he took the cup. When he had supped, saying, the cup is, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. As do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. 
Let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. In the words of institution, there are two words of caution. First of all, to the unbeliever, the apostle says this, He that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself. What the apostle says here is that those who come, who come professing much, but but are without genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they are like Judas. They approach Christ solemnly, intimately, but would would betray him with a kiss. And so the apostle says, these ones eat and drink damnation to themselves. Friend, when you and I come to this table, though we do so publicly, though we do so in the context of the visible church, it is crucial that this exhortation to examine oneself is taken very seriously. What I, your session, or others in the congregation think of you matters not at all. Friend, if you are in the Lord Jesus Christ, then this table is for you, and really only for you, if you would not eat and drink damnation to yourself. To the believer, there is a word of caution in this text as well. He says, those who abuse the sacrament, he says, because of them, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. Learned exegetes in the past remind us that the apostle says that there are those who slept, that has died in Corinth. But he doesn't describe them as going into perdition. He describes them as those who sleep. And so those who, of course, are sleeping in Jesus. Friend, it is also for the believer to remember that, that while we cannot eat and drink damnation to ourselves, it is possible to come to the sacrament in such a way as to abuse it. And here the apostle says the abuse of it does lead to the chastening hand of God. And so for the believer too, friend, we are to remember that this is a solemn occasion. God expects his people to draw near, his loved ones to come close, and to do so humbly and with gazes fixed upon Christ, not tritely and not coldly. But in this, beloved, there is a word of encouragement to come. He says again in verse 28, Let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. Friend, the table is not for those who are strong in the faith. It is not for those who have exceeded others in their walk with the Lord. It is for those who have examined themselves who know by experience what it is to flee to Christ, to cast their souls upon him. And however, howsoever weak, however, however great their need for pardon and cleansing, provided they look to Christ by faith, the apostle, he says very pointedly, let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup after finding themselves so. And so, friend, this table is open to all of his people, those, those who are looking to Christ by faith, 
Those who are communicant members or have met with session are certainly invited to come. Um, and we, we look forward to coming together to commune with our Lord this morning. At this time, I would ask for those who will be part of our first sitting to come forward. Uh, one of our elders will direct you um, to our first seeing. If you would, take your Psalters with you. As we saw in our text this morning, the Lord has opened up a fountain. And he's opened up a fountain for sin. As we said before, the opening of that fountain is, in that respect, tied to the pardon of grace, pardoning grace. We're sinners who are deeply stained. Sinners like those described in Isaiah 1, whose hands were like crimson, sullied by sin. Even they can find cleansing through Jesus Christ. But a sign and sealed for us in the sacrament this morning is just that. That friend, though your sin and mine, they are infinite in their guilt. Though we have sinned against a God of glory, of majesty, and of great goodness. As this sacrament signs and seals to us, forgiveness is offered and really found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we look to him by faith for pardon and grace, may we do so earnest, not only to see these things as we have before, but earnest to find new experience of them as well. The Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. Let's come before the throne of grace once more. Let us pray. Our gracious and eternal God, we thank and we praise you that you are merciful and that you are kind. But as we come this morning mindful that it was the Lord of glory who was crucified, slain for sinners, that it was the only begotten Son of God that was given, that we might be cleansed. Father, we come humbly, and we come asking that in your mercy and in your grace you would take up these means, that you would bless them to our souls, that as we partake, we would partake of Christ, and that by faith. Father, we come renouncing any righteousness in ourselves. We come as needy sinners, looking to Christ and him only for cleansing. And so we pray, Father, that even now, as we we sit under this ordinance, that you would bless us, show us more of Christ, and sign and seal to us, Father, we pray in sensible ways, that which is held for us in the sacrament. We ask all in Jesus' blessed name. Amen. After the same manner also, he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This is the cup of the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come.
praise God by taking up our Psalters and we turn to Psalm 106. Psalm 106. We sing there the first five verses in praise to God. And as we sing, I'd ask if those who are coming for our second sitting, um, if they would come forward at this time. Psalm 106, verses 1 to 5. We'll stand to praise God. morning, uh, we find here not only the pardoning of, of grace of God, but we find also its purging. Uh, we find here that our God, when he opened the fountain, when he sent his son, he did so that he might overcome the mountains of Bather, the mountains of division between him and his people, that he might overleap those hills, that there might indeed be a people who can draw near to God. The conscience is cleansed, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. 
and enjoying communion with the Father, with the Son, and with the Holy Spirit. Beloved, what you have in the sacrament sealed to us is nothing less than the Lord God overcoming those walls of separation. As the prophet Isaiah reminds us, it is our sin that has separated us and our God. And and now here we see on this table that through a slain Christ and through a resurrected high priest, prophet, and king, the Lord was pleased to reconcile us to him. That he was pleased even now to communicate those benefits to his church. Friend, it should be our earnest desire that we would know after leaving this table more and more by experience what it is to be reconciled to the triune God. That our communion with him would be far more vibrant. That our love for him would grow all the brighter. May it be that as we have sensibly before us the gospel depicted, that these things by his grace are worked in us. The Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body. Take it, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. Let's once again return to the throne of grace together. Let us pray. Our gracious and eternal God, we do thank and we praise you that though we were the bride on the hills of leopards and in the dens of lions, though we were those who were far off, sheep who had gone into the mountains, far from the fold, that you were pleased through Jesus Christ to reclaim to yourself a lot of unworthy, hell-deserving sinners. We praise and we thank you that on this, on this day, we have sacramentally signed and sealed to us that redemptive work that our great shepherd did cross through the many mountains. He moved, suffered, died, and is pleased even now to work to secure his people. And so, Father, we pray that as we come to this table, that our gaze will be fixed on him, that our hearts would be melted by the love that is here depicted. And, Father, we pray then that you would bless these elements. We pray that we would partake by faith, and that indeed that it is Christ here that we feed upon by faith. Bless us, we pray, and pardon us as we ask all in Jesus' blessed name. Amen. After the same manner also, he took, the, he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. To God's praise we sing Psalm 72, starting in verse 17. 
his name forever shall endure. Last like the sun it shall. Men shall be blessed in him. And blessed all nations shall him call. Now blessed be the Lord our God, the God of Israel. For he alone doth wondrous works in glory that excel. And blessed be his glorious name to all eternity. The whole earth let his glory fill. Amen. So let it be. To God's praise, we stand to sing these words. And please remain standing afterward for prayer and for the benediction. and everlasting God, we come, Father, thankful that we could sit under the ordinances of the gospel. We thank you that you have left open to us the wells of salvation that draw upon the fountain that is Christ. And Father, we ask then this morning as we leave this place that we would be mindful that vows have been renewed, that as the grace of our God has been signed and sealed to us afresh, so, Father, we are under new obligation to live more faithfully for you. Father, we ask that you would make us sensible of this. But also, we pray, make us more and more mindful that what this supper signifies to us will one day be consummate. One day we will come to, the, to that marriage supper. One day we will sup with Christ in his glory. Father, fix our gaze upon him and that glorious end. And make us then, we pray, more heavenly-minded people. Fill our hearts with thanksgiving indeed that the fountain has been opened. And that today, signed and sealed to us, is the reality that sinners, sinners, can be purged of sin and uncleanness in that fountain who is Christ. For we ask all in Jesus' blessed name. Amen. And receive now the Lord's benediction. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. 
The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. Amen.